We are, of course, continuing our study in the book of Jude. This incredible short 25 verse uh, epistle that has got so much depth to it. And we've obviously been going through, I think I mentioned originally, I was thinking maybe we'd do this in a week or two. Uh, and clearly that's not going to happen because there is so much. We can't skip over these things. Some of them are just too important, um, particularly in the days that we're living. So let's just quickly recap where we've got to. Jude, as we've seen already, wanted to write this letter of encouragement to the saints uh, that he was writing to. It's not written to a particular church. It is written to uh, those that love the Lord. But he finds himself compelled by the Holy Spirit to write this letter of warning instead. Now, what we see is uh, that evil people, evil men had crept into the church unnoticed. Now, again, Jesus had highlighted this, Matthew 13. We've touched on that already in previous studies. Yeah, and they've been teaching that you can live pretty much however you want to. Once you become a Christian, it doesn't matter because you're saved and that's all that really matters. So you can just do whatever you want, live however you want, and there's no consequence. That, of course, is not true. And Jude is really making the argument that it really does matter how you live and that there will be eternal consequences depending on how we live now. And as we've seen, he gives three object lessons from the Old Testament uh, to warn us of two principal things. And that is firstly, the danger of being led astray or being deceived by these apostates. And secondly, the danger of actually becoming apostate ourselves. And of course, we would think, well, that would never happen. And yet clearly there were those in the early church that seemed to have started well, but ended up um, becoming shipwrecked uh, spiritually uh, and then leading others away also. It's really that kind of turning away from the grace of God. And it's kind of an uncomfortable theme because we often talk about the fact that we are saved and that salvation is secure, it's eternal. And yet we've looked already at a number of examples in the Old Testament and the New where clearly God does bring to account those that live, shall we say, casual lives, lives that are not glorifying or honoring to God. Now, the examples we've seen already in the Old Testament the first one, of course, great example of that of Egypt. This is what Jude uh, brings us uh, to our remembrance. Uh, the, the people were saved from the bondage and slavery. It speaks of that life of sin. They were delivered. They were set free. The blood of the shed lamb had purchased their freedom effectively, that Passover. Uh, and they'd gone through the waters of the Red Sea, effectively analogous to baptism. And that those then that didn't believe in God's promises, in God's faithfulness, they all died out of the wilderness. So God did bring judgment and they lost the inheritance that otherwise they would have had. The second example is a strange example, but Jude throws it in here, is that the angels who left their natural abode, that place of blessing, walking, as it were, before the throne of God in that fellowship with God, they left that, that position. They rebelled against God through Satan's rebellion. And then a select group of those fallen angels also then embarked on this campaign that we read about in Genesis chapter 6, coming into this earth, taking women of the earth uh, and then producing offspring through them and uh, causing so many problems that led to many of the battles in the Old Testament. So many people get confused as to why there were so many battles in the Old Testament. Why did God command Israel to wipe out entire groups of people? And of course, non-Christians will claim it's genocide and Israel are terrible for doing it. 
Well, when you realize that there was a genetic problem that was threatening the human race, you start to realize quite uh, the severity of the situation and why God made those um, demands of Israel that they dealt with the nations in uh, Canaan when they came back into the land. But God, nevertheless, judged those angels uh, and has reserved them seemingly up until the day of judgment when he's going to allow them to be released upon the earth, as we've looked at already. The third example was that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, in like manner, we're told, gave themselves over um, to the lust of the flesh. And although these two cities particularly were situated in this wonderful, fertile plain in Jordan, the, the, the Bible itself speaks of as being like the Garden of God. That's the location. Everything was perfect for them, and yet their immorality just took over and as a result god brought destruction upon them and of course the if anybody's been to southern israel you know that it's quite an arid um piece of land uh, where these two cities once were and we said already that really we see what john speaks about in first john as the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life those three great enemies um, that really Jude is alluding to here as being the problem that apostates end up falling into. And he can use these examples and then goes on to say that the apostates are just the same. Now, Jude is going to begin to list the characteristics of these apostates. Now, I just want to remind you of Jesus's words in Matthew 7. He says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Now notice Jesus says you can know where someone's heart is because you look at the fruit they produce. And Jesus said, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruits, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So it all is dependent upon the connection you have or not to the root. The root, of course, is Jesus Christ. If you have that connection, then you will bear fruit. That fruit will be godly fruit. But someone who is not connected to Jesus Christ will not bring forth godly fruits. They may bring some sort of show of godliness, but it's it's lacking that power. It's lacking that real relationship and the genuineness. Now, Jude is going to begin by highlighting, as we've already seen, these apostates' attitude towards authority. And, of course, the example that Jude gives is that of the Archangel Michael when contending with Satan. And we looked at this in detail last time. But even in that extreme case, the point is, and we shouldn't miss the point of that, that Michael still shows respect to Satan even though he's the devil, he's the embodiment of evil. And you think if anybody you could kind of throw some sort of um, railing accusation or slur or whatever, I'll speak disparagingly of, surely Satan would be in that category. Well, Michael doesn't do so. Uh, and we have this example to remind us that we should show respect to those in authority. See, God takes the issue of authority very seriously. And we ended last week by just highlighting that whether that be authority in a nation, we are to show respect to those who are in authority because they've been appointed by God. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand why or not, whether it seems that they are leading the nation into all sorts of ungodliness, nevertheless, God, for his purposes, we're told very clearly in the book of Romans, appoints those that are in authority. 
but also whether it's in a church or not. And there's a lot in scripture that speaks about order within the church. And that's a very important thing. But then also within the family. And again, Paul writing to Titus and in Ephesians speaks about order within the family. It's another thing. The world loves to try and undermine all of these things and move away from kind of authority in that sense. Uh, they don't like the family structure because it just challenges the world's mindset of how it wants to be and the so-called liberties they want to enjoy. But then also order within a marriage. And again, scripture is very clear that there is a definite order that God has placed in all of these things. And God takes it very seriously. And we do well to heed scripture's teaching on these things. Now, going back into verse eight, which is kind of where we were last time, kind of where we tailed off. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. You know, again, we said they have no regard for God's created order, just as the angels that left their first estate, just as those in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jude is saying that these filthy dreamers, that these apostates, they defile the flesh. They don't like authority over them. They despise dominion. They, they, they want to be their own kind of free spirit ruling their own lives. They don't like authority. They don't like accountability. Uh, and they speak evil of dignities. So those who are in authority, they're very quick to uh, bring sorts of uh, accusations and claims and criticism and so on. Again, they've got no regard for God's appointed rulers. And as we read last week, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He does not bring against him a reigning accusation, but said the Lord rebuke thee. And as you said, even in that bizarre situation, Michael did not speak disparagingly about the devil. So the lesson is, if that case is where Michael doesn't act in, in a disparaging way, then nor should we against any power or authority that exists now as you said last time that doesn't mean we agree that doesn't mean we approve of that doesn't mean we have to like it just does mean we have to show respect and you see even in the new testament examples of this peter and john and so on when they're told not to speak in the name of jesus they are not disparaging towards the jewish leadership in fact even jesus himself when he's on trial uh, just before he's crucified still shows respect and this is the, the message really that comes through that Jude's giving us. And again, these speak evil of things which they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. They just give themselves over to their fleshly inclinations. Now, we're going to start to see now this building the character of apostates. Now, this is helpful, and I don't think we're going to get through all of this this morning, as I've already said. Um, but we got, start to get a, a, a glimpse of what these apostates are like. But the really interesting thing is it becomes a checklist for you and I to say, actually, are we like that? In any particular uh, aspect, and we'll go through and see. Now, the first thing we've already seen is they're filthy dreamers, but then they defile the flesh. They despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. They speak evil of what they don't know, and they act on carnal instincts. As we go on, this list is added to. In verse 11, we're going to pick up this morning. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So these additional characteristics are now added. They've gone in the way of Cain. We'll look at this. Run greedily after the error 
of Balaam, and we'll talk about what that error is in a moment, and then destroyed themselves in the gainsaying of Korah. So in what way have they brought destruction upon themselves, and what was that situation with Korah? Again, we'll come back to that in a moment. But I just want to go through just to build this list, and then we can start to, uh, as I say, we won't get through it all this week, but we can start to go through and uh, understand these characteristics and particularly how we should respond. And we're told that these are spots in your feasts of charity uh, when they feast with you. In the early church, they used to have celebrations when they would come together, they'd bring food, they'd share it. It was a great fellowship time. But it's saying they're spots, and we'll look at the detail of what that really means uh, as we get there. Um, feeding themselves without fear. So in other words, not interested in other people, not putting others first, just looking for them, looking out for themselves just looking to satisfy themselves clouds they are without water carried about of winds trees whose fruit withereth without fruit twice dead plucked up by the roots raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever so this list of um, characteristics then is built on so the tenth one then we have now in this list is their spots now really in the greek and we'll look at this again um, a bit more detail when we get there um, but it's like hidden rocks under the surface of the water that could shipwreck a vessel and that's just how they appear amongst the congregation um, they are they feed themselves without fear there is clouds without water they're carried about on winds, just blown around effectively by every wind of doctrine, not going where they want to go, but effectively being driven by a power other than themselves. Very interesting. We start to look at this. Um, there are trees whose fruit withers. Now, Jesus, we've already seen, made this comment about fruit. Now, the fruit that we have in Christ is fruit that will abide. It lasts but these individuals fruit whatever they do produce it just withers and then it says also they're without fruit without anything meaningful without anything good on them twice dead jesus spoke about the second death uh, we'll look at that plucked up by the roots you know you can chop the the head off a weed but you know it's going to come back well these individuals have been plucked up by the roots that's going to put an end to them raging waves of the sea you know you think how little a wave accomplishes in all this raging and this is the parallel that's being drawn though they they seem uh, to be very powerful and strong they accomplish very little and then foaming out shame and then the last one wandering stars uh, the ideas of meteorites shine brightly for a very short piece of period of time um, but there's nothing lasting about them. And we'll, again, explore these in a bit more detail. Um, the text goes on and says, And Enoch, uh, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all, uh, all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You kind of get the idea that Enoch, in prophesying this, was trying to make a point about these people being ungodly. Again, we're going to explore this in, in greater depth, so I'm just going to go through just to get this list to start with. We're told that they are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaks great swelling words. Interesting, Antichrist, when he comes onto the scene, will do exactly that. 
we we know the source of those great swelling words is from satan be it through antichrist or be it through these apostates having men's persons in admiration because of advantage so oh they will say the right thing to the right person to gain courage or to curry favor to gain position uh, not out of sincerity but just so that it gives them advantage so we add to this list 21 murmurers second the 22nd thing complainers walking after their own lusts mouth speaking great swelling words again having men's person in admiration because of advantage we're told jude goes on and says but beloved remember you the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our lord jesus christ interesting jude quoting scripture here but the scripture he quotes is interesting it's from second peter how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts these be they who separate themselves sensual not having the spirit so this list carries on they're mockers walking after their own ungodly lusts we're told that they separate themselves. Now, this is very interesting because they don't like accountability. They want to get away from any sense of responsibility. Sensual. Well, isn't that the way of the world today? And then again, the final one on this list, the 30th one that I can make, and you can make your own list. I counted 30 of them without the spirit. So these are the characteristics of these apostates. Now, as we go through this, what I want to do is to start to look at how these should kind of for us be a little bit of a, a checklist to make sure that these things are not evident and not apparent in our lives because they shouldn't be there but sadly we'll probably find that some of them are and so it's a good list to go through and then bring these before the lord and pray that the lord will work in our hearts to make sure that we're not like these people so with that Let's just go back into the text. So just picking up from what we've looked at already, we're told, and we saw this last time, that they're filthy dreamers. Now it speaks of that which goes on in the mind. Things that were going on where others don't get to see. You know, nobody else gets to see or know your thoughts. First Corinthians 4, 5 though tells us this. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts you see god knows god sees the thoughts that you have when no one else is around now these individuals that are being referred to their thoughts are corrupted their thoughts are very impure but the danger for us is that we can easily imitate in a sense their characteristics by not keeping a close check upon our own thought life Jeremiah 17, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, we know that in our heart dwells no good thing, we're told from the book of Romans. And then Proverbs 23, verse 7, often misquoted verse, uh, but it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, a lot of people try and use that, um, particularly um those who are into dominion theology kingdom now theology and so on uh, a lot of the mega churches love this verse because they think it's saying that if you just think something you can be something that's not what this verse is saying it's not saying if you think hard enough you can make it happen that's not that's nonsense what it's saying is that the real person is the person in the heart it's what a man thinks that he doesn't say with his mouth that's the real person as a man thinks in his heart so is he 
You know, he may come across being all wonderful, kind, benevolent and so on. But really, what are the thoughts? What are the intents of the heart? Of course, the word of God, we're told in Hebrews 4, is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So these filthy dreamers, that's the first thing that's listed. And we could spend a morning just looking at the danger of our thought life. Now, in contrast, we are told that we are to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a great test. You know, if you can bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, then you're probably doing okay in your walk with the Lord. But if there's things that you don't feel comfortable bringing before the Lord, if there's things, there's thoughts that are going on in your heart and your mind where you don't really want to kind of countenance God at the same time, that implies that there is an issue. And those things we need to go to God and ask for his grace to work in our lives in those areas. You know, and it could be lustful thoughts. It could be bitterness. It could be envy. It could be hatred. It could be all manner of things that we allow those thoughts just to resonate just for a little bit of time. You know, sometimes a little bit of bitterness can sometimes feel like a good thing. We feel like we're justified in having those emotions, those feelings. You know, sometimes lust will try and justify it and we'll we'll, we'll put all sorts of uh, wraps around it to make it seem like it's not that bad. Well, can you go into the presence of God with that thought exposed? No, you can't. And so this is the whole point that we should go to the Lord, every thought being brought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, there's a lot that's spoken of in the Christian world of spiritual warfare. And a lot of people make it very complicated and uh, all sorts of things are said. And there's nonsense about territorial spirits and all sorts of things. And, you know, uh, powers over certain geographical areas that, that cause problems in that area. Now, look, I'm not denying, of course, there is scriptural precedent to say that there are principalities and powers and they do wield influence. But, you know, regarding your life, you know, the only power that really should have any influence in your life is that of the Holy Spirit. No demonic power or spirit, uh, fallen angelic power should have any control over you whatsoever. And, you know, there's a lot of things made. The real battleground, the whole basis of spiritual warfare is the mind. That's where it takes place. And this verse in 2 Corinthians, or this portion in 2 Corinthians 10, speaks about the warfare that we wage. Um, and, you know, the weapons that we have are mighty in God for bringing down strongholds. What are those strongholds? Well, it's every thought and every imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So it's everything that builds itself up in your life that would be contrary to God, that would cause you to question God or question his word or doubt his faithfulness. That's where the battle takes place. That's why we need to continually encourage each other and read his word and pray and be reminded of his faithfulness in all these things. So that's just the first one. You see why we're not going to get through this list this morning. The second one, they defile the flesh. Now, Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. See the, 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 the consistency through scripture. Paul says that these things are unfruitful. This is sort of something Jude will again highlight, we'll look at. Uh, unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So this is speaking of those that defile the flesh and things they allow. And of course, Romans, it says, wherefore God gave them up uh, and also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Uh, in contrast, we are to glorify God in our body, in our spirit, which are God's. 
So there's a big difference between the way the world is, the way the world just feels free to embark on any physical experience that they feel is uh, what they want. Uh, of course, scripture makes it clear that there are boundaries that God has put in place and they are there for our protection as well as for our enjoyment. You see, the world often has this understanding that Christians uh, are very kind of prudish, very backward, uh, very repressed. That's not the case at all. No, the, the God has given us a clear plan of how we should live and how we can enjoy the the benefits, the blessings, the fulfillment of an intimate life with a marriage partner. You know, these are the things that are made clear in scripture, but outside of that, then it can only bring corruption. It can bring pain. It'll bring sorrow. And we, we see it in the world, don't we? The, the divorce rate such as it is, you know, people thinking that they, they know what they want and they treat love and relationships so casually. Um, so again, our bodies are to be given to God. We're to live a life that is glorifying to him. Then the third one, they despise dominion. They speak evil of dignities. Uh, they speak evil of what that which they don't know. Now, we spent so much time last time going through this. that I'm not going to spend more time this morning on that. Uh, just review last week's if you want to look at the details of that again. But that's, I think, clear enough. But they also act on carnal instincts, is what we're told. And our 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And in Romans 8, 7 and 8, it says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Some really serious warnings here. You know, if as a Christian you are living a carnal life, note what that bottom line says there of Romans 8 verse 8, that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's some really clear warnings. These are the characteristics of the apostates, but we see how these apply in warning to us. In fact, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're told very clearly that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, we are to think differently and so therefore we're going to act differently. Then we're told this list of three. They've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the era of Balaam and destroyed themselves in the gainsaying of Korah. I think we'll, we'll, we'll just look at this this morning and then we'll leave the, the rest of this, the, the other 21 uh, of these characteristics and we'll build on it next time. But let's just have a look then at these three. What does it mean, gone in the way of Cain? Well, back in... Uh, well, verse 11, of course, is where we have this. Woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So Cain, we know, was a tiller of the soil. Error of Balaam, well, Balaam was a prophet. And then Korah was a prince in Israel. So the first thing we should observe from this list is that apostasy is not confined to just one class of people. You know, you can't claim that, well, only because I was in this situation or that situation, you know, I kind of fell into that. No, because it's right across the board, these things. In fact, Chuck Misler makes the point. He says, individually, each, each speaks of a particular aspect of what it means to fall away from the truth. Collectively, they present a complete process. So we're going to look at this. We'll just have to start to take these apart one by one. Notice, though, this process. They've gone in the way, they've ran, and they perished. So it starts off slowly. They go in a path. Then they start picking up pace, and ultimately it leads to their destruction. This just reminded me of what we read in Psalm 1. 
Psalm 1, the first few verses we read, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. But notice the pattern. It's very similar to what Judy's saying here. It starts off by walking. And this is the danger. People can just be walking and they can something catches their eye. And then they end up standing, stopping to observe in the way of sinners. And then finally, they end up sitting. They get caught up in these things. And it's such a dangerous downward spiral. See the step one on this downward slope. We are walking through life and we have a choice who to listen to. But if we end up listening to those wrong influences in our life, and this is what Jude is warning us about, then the result of that listening can be that we end up going down further. We start to stand in the way, listening to the counsel of the ungodly, and then we end up with the edges becoming so blurred, we end up sitting and participating. We end up doing what once upon a time would have seemed horrible to us. And yet we can easily become desensitized to these things. So someone, great little warning lesson. He goes on to speak about the blessing of those who do live godly and who do um, put their faith and trust in Jesus, who walk in the way, uh, to borrow a phrase from Psalm 119. Let's then just go back then and build and look at the way of Cain. Of course, we told Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten the man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Just an interesting little aside here. It would seem that these two were twins. Now, you may not see it initially, but if you notice, we're told that she conceived once and she bears twice. If you conceive once and you bear twice, then they're twins. So that would seem to be from the text what's implied here. <clears throat> and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground. Now, again, notice what Judy is going to go on to talk about the fruits. Um, they have fruit, but it's not anything of value. It's not lasting. It's as if they have no fruit. He brought the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he, uh, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now, there's a clue in verse four or something deeper that you might miss first time round. that he brought the firstlings of his flock. It wasn't just simply that Cain was a tiller of the ground. So he brought of his produce and Abel was a shepherd. So he brought of his produce. He brought a sheep. No, that's not the case, because Abel brings something very specific. He brings of the firstlings. He brings a lamb and the fat thereof now this is later amplified for us in the book of leviticus but this is way before we get to leviticus and the law and the sacrificial system that's established under moses this is way back in the book of genesis and clearly that god had established the sacrificial system by when adam and eve had sinned they made themselves fig leaves to try and cover them not realizing how foolish an idea that was going to be um and as a result of that god then gives them coats of skins god is the one who brings about the first sacrifice and it's plural so there's two lambs seemingly that are bloody shed and that their clothes that their skins are given to adam and eve as a clothing as a protection that means that blood was shed abel continues that tradition understanding no doubt from adam this whole basis of sacrifice and so when he comes to god he brings an offering that's acceptable and this is confirmed in the book of hebrews because we're told it was by faith that abel 
offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So Abel's sacrifice was based upon faith. It was the atoning shed blood of this lamb that he was offering. It wasn't anything to do with the fact that he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, but that's that's not the issue. The point is that Abel was offering what he was offering out of faith, recognizing that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But unto Cain and his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. How did they know whether their offerings were accepted or not? This is an interesting thought, but actually in the Old Testament, uh, we find a number of examples of offerings that were accepted. And the way that they were accepted is that God rained down fire and burnt up the sacrifices. We see it with Moses and Aaron in Leviticus 9.24. We see it with Gideon in Judges 6, Samson's parents in Judges 13, with Elijah in 1 Kings 18, with King David in 1 Chronicles 21, and then with Solomon, uh, the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 7. Now, uh, you'll know often in scripture we have list of seven. Seven means complete. And so there seems to be one missing. Well, the suggestion is that Abel is the one that's missed off that list. That Abel also, his offering was accepted by fire coming down from heaven. And that was how Abel knew his offering was accepted. But Cain straight away recognized that his offering was not accepted. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well... Shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over it. <clears throat> and Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. So let's just conclude this then. The way of Cain. Cain did not deny the existence of God, nor necessarily did these apostates. He did not refuse to worship God. And by the way, neither do these apostates that Jude is referring to. He simply failed to come to God on the basis of the atoning sacrificial shed blood of a lamb. The only way you can come to God is in the way that God has prescribed. And it's through the shedding of blood. It's looking ultimately to Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed. You see, Cain had wanted to come to God on his terms, and that's just what these apostates do. They want to redefine what religion is and what it means to have a relationship with God, what you can do, what you can't do, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. They want to set the terms. It doesn't work that way. God sets the terms. See, Cain wanted to set the conditions for approaching God, and ultimately what we see here is a rejection of God's word. And really, all apostasy begins here. This is where it begins, with the rejection of God's word. Let's leave it there for this morning. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you 
just for this very simple reminder, the importance of your word in walking in the way. The Lord, if we are not to be led astray and deceived, if we're not to be tripped up by the sin which so easily ensnares, then Lord, we need your word as our continual, uh, continue companion and guide. Oh, Father, help us to learn from the list that Jude gives, these characteristics of the apostates, and Lord, make sure that none of these things exist in our lives. And Lord, if we recognize that they are there, we pray by your grace that you would do a work in us through sanctification to set us apart, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice, which we're told, Lord, is our reasonable service. Also, Lord, we just ask you to continue working in our lives and keep us close to you as we grow in knowledge and grace. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.